All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. We're this, good is, this is our fifth episode, and we are very excited to have the wonderful Dr. Mary Jane Weiss joining us today. Uh, Hi so guys. I think everyone, everyone's going to be really excited to hear what she has to say on collaboration. She, to me, is a leading expert in a great deal of many things, including collaboration. And so her perspective uh, will be really enlightening for everybody. Before we start, I need to go through some, uh, you know, just logistics of this. As you know, you can get your uh, one CEU, and this one you could get a supervision CEU, so they're extra valuable to you BCBAs out there. Uh, but we have code words. And so before we begin, I'm going to give you a code word. And as we end, we have code words. Now be sure that you uh, mail me, email me, not mail me, though I might prefer that, but email me uh, your name and your BCBA number and then the code word before and the code word afterwards and that way I will send you a certificate uh, by the end of this weekend, by Sunday, is my goal is to send everybody there. So name, BCBA number, and the code words. I'll give you the code word in a second. Um, the second thing is the general structure is that uh, Mary Jane Weiss and uh, myself and Joe just talk about different issues this, with collaboration. And as you have questions, just put those up in the Q&A uh, portion. You could put in the chat, but we prefer it in the Q&A. And Joe is gonna be the one monitoring those. So if you have questions for Mary Jane, uh, you can bring them and she'll answer them and we'll have a discussion about them. And if you even wanna get on the screen, which means you're recorded on the screen, um, and ask it personally to Mary Jane, just let us know. We can, you know, make you part of this discussion uh, for at least your question. Did I miss anything, Joe? Uh, no. Well, I don't, I'm just going to add that if you do decide to ask questions in the chat, uh, it has options to send questions directly to the panelists and not anybody else that's attending. Um, so if you want to ask a question anonymously, that's, that's a way to do that. But you can also do it in the Q&A. Uh, but if you're trying to start a conversation with some of the other attendees, just keep in mind that if you send it just to the panelists, then no, none of the other attendees are gonna see what you're putting in. So with that, I'm gonna give you the first keyword and the first keyword, the opening keyword is mail. M-A-I-L, mail. And with that, uh, Joe, you wanna start us off? Yeah, well, I think um, I, I'm equally excited that we have Dr. Mary Jane Weiss with us to talk about collaboration, uh, especially given some of the recent publications. I think you just had one not too long ago with a couple of the attendees, I think, that are here um, in behavior. I saw that Danielle LaFrance uh, was the first author on a 2019 article in Bath on collaboration. Yeah. There yeah. she is, yes. So we, we have experts all over the place in here, so it should make for a really nice discussion. Uh, and I think we tend to just open it up and have a frank discussion amongst the three of us. And then if there's any questions that come up that fit within the, in the conversation that we're having, we'll go ahead and work those into the, to the conversation. Or um, if it doesn't necessarily fit where we're at, we'll work that in towards the end 
um, when the conversation starts to wrap up. Uh, so based on that, I, I, I have, uh, I just want to open it up to the three of us about, um, I guess a, a preface would be, uh, behavior analysis, um, it, it, and, and your education in behavior analysis tends to give you this worldview. Uh, and we as behavior analysts, uh, look at behavior and we look at the world and we look at the environment through that lens. Uh, and through that, we've been able to make lots of lots of great strides in lots of different areas, uh, particularly in, in autism intervention. And I think uh, in autism intervention, you're typically working on a team of people, and they might not necessarily all be behavior analysts. Typically, they aren't. Uh, and then typically, you're met with some people that might not necessarily have the same worldview as, as you as a behavior analyst. So I think I'd like to open up the discussion as to how we might navigate the situations in which we find ourselves in an interdisciplinary team uh, where we might be the only behavior analyst with our worldview. Uh, and then there's other people that might come in and look at behavior in a little bit of a different way. Um, so I'll start reacting to that, Joe, because I think about it the same way you do. I think about how it's all a function of our training. It's all a function of our supervised experience and the skill sets that behavior analysts are bringing to their professional experience are the skill sets that have been developed by their mentors, by their professors. It's a function of what we've emphasized potentially in the field of behavior analysis. And I think one thing that we emphasize very heavily is worldview. And so I think when behavior analysts are in collaboration contexts, particularly when people are suggesting the use of non-evidence-based interventions or interventions for which the data are not yet very clear, they fall back on that worldview, that grounding in science. They remember their professors, people like me, saying things like science is your compass, right? We use evidence-based interventions. We check to see that things have been empirically validated. And so I think what they're trying to do is stay the course stay rooted in the foundations of our science and our field of inquiry. Um, and I think that that's a very important skill set. I'm proud of the fact that behavior analysis is good at shaping and honing that worldview in our students. But I also think there's another skill set that hasn't been as emphasized in our training and supervision of behavior analysts. And that's really the collaborative skill set the interpersonal skill set of working together with people who may come at intervention from a different perspective, from a different field of study, and whose definition of evidence might be different, whose definition of interventions might be wholly different from what ours are. And I don't think that as a field, we've done a lot to identify what are the skills that help us in those discussions and navigations with other members of the team who are coming at this from a different worldview. And so probably like all of you, I feel like I do a lot of repairing people's experiences with other behavior analysts, right? Because they may see us as arrogant or dismissive or as unyielding in terms of the direction we ought to take because their experiences might be encountering more of that solid worldview and the statements that people make in those kinds of contexts, I think are things like, well, there's no evidence for that, 
or, you know, well, we use only scientifically validated procedures and there is no data on that. You know, attempts to stay close to the science that risk potentially offending people who are coming at things from a different perspective. So I've been really excited in the last few years. I feel like there's been more spotlight that is being shown on the skill set of collaboration. And I think part of that might be because we, um, we don't want to have that reputation and the damage that comes with it and the fact that we become less efficacious when people see us as people that don't collaborate well. And um, I think it's great that we're starting to talk about, so what are these skills? What are the skills that help you have the difficult conversations that still enable you to stay close to science, but that also enable you to have team-based discussions about directions for intervention? I think that is the most wonderfully stated response to that question or that topic. Um, I, I feel like we can just end the rants right now uh, because there is so much there. Uh, to, and, and so much, I, I think, to potentially unpack. Because we do have, uh, if you've ever worked in a school setting or, or in other settings where you might be the only behavior analyst, we don't have the greatest reputation in those environments. Uh, and I think that you're right. Uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, just not a lot of focus within our field on looking at those skills that would go into effectively collaborating in those environments. Uh, and I think uh, some of that is we... I don't see a large emphasis on becoming bilingual within our field. I think that contributes to it just a little bit. Um, like we push technical jargon uh, and we want people to be um, scientifically and, and technically correct when they're talking about behavior analysis, but we don't necessarily give them um, the other set or that other side of the skill to where it's like, well, but you have to talk to other people that aren't necessarily behavior analysts. Like a doctor is not going to talk to a doctor all the time and they're still going to need to be effective in those environments. Uh, so I think if we could work more of that into our training programs to where people have to provide the technical definition, but also, all right, so say you're working with a, a speech language pathologist, how would you describe that in that environment as well? I think that's so important. I think um, uh, kind of a, another angle on that would be that we do very little to understand the skill sets of other disciplines. The article in 2019 in BAP by Daniela Franz, who's here with us today, um, you know, that article talked about the scope of training and the scope of competence associated with common other co-treaters of ASD, right? So looking at what do um, OTs and SLPs and psychologists learn and what is their field of expertise and how do they fit into a true interdisciplinary model of intervention. I feel like even that is underrepresented in what we teach graduate students in behavior analysis. I'm not sure that people understand the unique contributions and the special expertise that other members of the team sitting around that interdisciplinary team meeting table bring to treatment of that individual. So that's different from what you said, but I also agree with what you said. I think we don't necessarily understand what their skill set is, and then we don't have a good ability to dialogue with them. So we tend to be very jargon heavy. We love the language of our own science. But in fact, being able to translate that in a way that's more readily understood by co-treaters would be extremely efficient in terms of helping advance our common goals. So 
I mean, I'm listening to this and I'm trying to put this in a, a little bit of a historical perspective because I think it goes to training. And I don't think, and you, you can correct me, I don't think we were always perceived that way. If I look at like our founding parents, like there's no way that Mont Wolf wasn't perceived as collaborative. And there's no way that Sandy Harris wasn't received as collaborative or Bess Salser Azroff or Don Bear, or Jim Sherman or, or Ione or Azrin, right? They all, they all were, had those collaborative skills. They all displayed soft skills, I think, in, in the settings they went. And I'm wondering if you saw when a change happened and why you think that change happened from winning from, I think we were really good clinically in clinical sensitivity skills and, and these skills. And I think I've gone, we've gone away from that, that. And the reason I bring this up, MJ, is I'm wondering if there's, when we went away from it, can we find the variables um, that make it so that we can get back to being a certain way or perceived a certain way? That's a great question. Um, and I don't know, I've got to think about it. I agree with you in that I believe that we were better. Let's say when I was trained, we were all trained extensively in these soft skills, let's call them that for the moment, right? In these interpersonal skills, whether it was providing compassionate care to families or working in an inter interdisciplinary context with members from other professions, add to that a third skill set that I think um, falls in that area, which is you know cultural competence slash cultural humility skills. I, I think that those are skills that in my graduate education were strongly emphasized. Um, and I guess I take for granted that I understand a little bit about them because of how closely I was trained and supervised to demonstrate them. Um, so that's a really good question because maybe it isn't, maybe part of it is that it hasn't been emphasized in our coursework um, or in uh, our supervised experience. Maybe part of the issue is ensuring that it gets covered in that. Like for example, I remember when I came to Endicott nine years ago um, to put together the master's program in autism and ABA, I included a required class on collaboration. That's always been part of the program and that I'm really proud of. But that was super outlier-ish at the time in that you didn't really see a lot of places emphasizing an entire course in that skill set. Um, and I think it's getting more attention, but I wonder if it's as simple as ensuring that it's required to be covered as part of professional training. Yeah, I, I think you're hitting on it, MJ, is that, that you've done it. And so I think the students that have the very unique uh, and great opportunity to work with you as part of their graduate training, whether it's a master's or PhD program, they get to see that collaboration and how to be a collaborative behavior analyst. And I, I think that's probably different than a lot of programs today where there's a whole class dedicated to that. And I'm just thinking like, if you're looking at the early days of some of the names I mentioned, who I think most people would say are, are, are founding parents, right? There was not a specific like course sequence or a specific ABA program for the most part. They had to collaborate within psychology or within education or special education so that they got to take more courses where they had to be learn how to be collaborative, right? That's because true. even like the faculty, they were usually in part we're of from psychology. different disciplines. Yes. And so you, so they modeled it. Uh, you would have to take a class in uh, intro to, let's say, behavior modification and then have to take a clinical psych class. 
And so you have to learn how to interact as a student in there. And you got to watch your mentor interact uh, with faculty who they might disagree with fundamentally on the reasons why behavior occurs. Yeah. But maybe there's another reason, which is about the imprecision of it as a concept, right? It's, um, it's a bit on the uh, touchy-feely side of the equation as we talk about it, like what is compassionate care? What is collaborative skill sets, right? And so I, I wonder if we also shy away from it because of how we distinguish ourselves from other fields of study and how we focus so much on operational definitions and measurability. And I believe it's completely possible to operationally define and to measure those things. Then a lot of other people in the field are saying the same thing now. Look at all the work going on with Compassionate Care by Taylor and LeBlanc uh, and others, for example. Um, and they're saying the same messaging that it is possible for us to um, value these things, to define these things, to measure, teach, and train these things. So I feel like we're at, I feel like we're kind of at a revolutionary uh, time in this area. And I might be the only one that thinks this way, but I kind of think about it as a response class. All these skills kind of load on the same fundamentals that we're talking about from a definitional perspective. And we're talking about highlighting the importance of them and incorporating them into our teaching and training. So, so maybe part of what is going on is, is that it's also a moment in time where the absence of the skills in the relatively recent past has now been identified as a problem, which is creating an opportunity. Yeah, I think that's beautifully stated once again. Yeah, I, and I, I love the optimism. I, I share it. I do feel like we're, we're at a, I mean, in lots of different areas within our field, um, we're, we're at a point in time where I think we're starting to see some real change. Uh, and I think efforts in collaboration and, and really looking at those, those skill sets that everyone has kind of strayed away from, I think even calling them soft skills almost feels like a little bit of an insult, you know? Uh, and some, know. People, some people have talked about that a little bit. Um, but I, I, I want to go back to what you were all saying. Like, it, it, when I think about people like the founding mothers and the founding fathers of our field, uh, they didn't come into this with a necessarily behavior analytic background. Uh, they had a very different training background. Uh, it might be traditional psychology or something else or education. And then they got the behavior analytic uh, training. Now we have training programs that are just solely behavior analytic. And we have clinics that are just behavior analytic clinics. Um, so you're not necessarily, you might not get that experience in a school setting or other types of settings where you might have to collaborate. So I think some of that is also driving uh, our yes. reputation for not being good collaborators or not developing those skills uh, to make sure that we can be effective collaborators. Right. I also think that some of it, sometimes when I talk to students of behavior analysis, I, or watch someone who's doing something clinically in that context, I see what they're doing is well-intentioned, right? They're, they're often in a hurry to get to the behavior change. You know, they're, they're skipping over those things, not because they're throwing them to the side, but because they're so passionate about trying to get in there and make a difference with whatever's going on behaviorally or in terms of skill acquisition. And I think um, also kind of refocusing and helping people understand that there's the reason we want to learn these skills is to be more effective, 
also. It's not just to have people like us more. It's because we're, our outcomes are going to be measurably better if we are perceived as better collaborators and are actually collaborating better. Yeah, I, well, and it creates the, when we do that, it creates the opportunity for other expertise or other people that are experts in different areas to bring what they're experts at to the table. Uh, and I think someone, someone sent a message, I don't know if it was to us or to everyone, that if we don't know what they bring, um, we don't understand their value. Um, that was think, Danielle LaFrance, yeah. right? She said, if we don't know what they bring to the table, we don't understand their value. And that was beautifully said. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and once, we, once we know what they can bring or we give them the opportunity to bring that to the table and we're not punishing it going in with our, our uncollaborative skills, uh, then we start to see those, those bigger increases in the effects that we're looking for. Uh, so I think it's a very valid point. I agree. So I guess, what do you do though when you find you're in a situation, whether it's a school or clinic, and they really want something that doesn't have evidence, something that's pseudoscientific or anti-scientific. How, how do you handle that, MJ? And how would you train others to handle that? Um, so that's the most important question because we're all going to find ourselves in those situations. And if you talk to people, those are the things that we all find most challenging, most anxiety provoking, um, and that I think, um, you know, lead us to kind of questioning whether what we're doing in any moment in time is the best professional response that we could be doing. And um, so I think it's, it's a common stressor for practicing behavior analysts, whether you're a junior member of the profession or a more advanced member of the profession. I really think that. And so here's what I do. Um, and not everyone agrees with this. I've, I've certainly had conversations with fellow behavior analysts who don't like this approach at all, but it works for me. <laughs> and so I'll offer it up in terms of um, the way to think about this kind of in a methodical way, because I think we need an approach to how we uh, um, manage these kinds of situations. And so one of the things I rely on is to think about things as a red light, yellow light, green light situation. And I didn't make that up. That's actually a parent resource that was developed by Autism New Jersey that I was involved in a number of years ago. We were trying to come up with um, a way to convey to parents what are the no-go procedures, the things that could really do harm to your child? What are the things that nobody really knows? And it might be a big waste of your time, but we don't really know. We don't yet know that it's a waste of your time. And what are the things that we know are good in terms of investing time, money, and hope, maybe most importantly, in terms of the direction you're going in with your child? So Autism New Jersey put together, they have it on their website. I could send any of you the link for it. Um, and it literally uses a traffic signal that, um, that talks about red light, yellow light, and green light interventions. And um, the, the red light list is short. I think there are eight things on it right now. Um, and so things get added to it very, very slowly. But the big ticket items, the things that are the hills you die on, they're on there, right? So facilitated communication, rapid prompting method, which is just FC redux, I think, you know? Um, secretin, which was an old hormonal treatment many years ago that was super dangerous. Chelation, 
auditory integration training, right? So some of the things that have maybe created um, the worst dilemmas for parents and for us as professionals when we're dealing with parents or fellow professionals that are contemplating those interventions, they're on there as red light procedures. And they're on there because of a few things. So there's documented harm. There's documented lack of effectiveness. You know, multiple replications that show nothing good comes of this. Um, and so you can get on that list either way. There doesn't have to be documented harm. There could just be complete clarity that it also does not work. Um, and uh, additional things are uh, layered into that, including whether there are uh, position statements against them. And so I use this framework of the red light, yellow light, green light, and I rely really heavily on published research, but also position statements. And I'm not talking about just position statements inside our own science, because there are very few. There's a beautiful one on FC from the early 1990s, but you won't find a whole lot out there. And if you're searching for it, you're not likely to find it for whatever it is that is your intervention of the moment that someone is suggesting. Um, but there are some allied disciplines that have produced a lot more position statements than behavior analysts have. Um, for example, ASHA. ASHA, the American Speech and Hearing Association, has a lot of magnificently worded, really science-based position statements. I can get so excited about ASHA's position statements that I could like think about becoming a speech and language pathologist. <laughs> They're really, really good at sifting through this and sending a message to their constituency who are practicing SLPs about what you do and what you don't do, what you recommend and what you don't recommend. Um, if anybody wants to be similarly inspired, just look at their 2018 updated FC position statement, which by the way, we've never updated ours from the early 90s, but they updated theirs in 2018, and their um, 2018 RPM, rapid prompt method, position statement. And they go through all of the issues that exist for us similarly, conceptually, experimentally, from a practice perspective, human rights violation issues that are associated with taking someone's voice and pretending you're speaking uh, their truth when you're not. It's just completely comprehensive. So I try to stay updated on position statements, whether it be from ASHA or the American Academy of Pediatrics or the American Occupational Therapy Association, because I find that it helps me in the collaborative context when we're having the conversation about this intervention. If I can say the American Academy of Pediatrics actually has a position statement against that, it's huge. People care about that a lot more. Nobody cares that Mary Jane thinks we shouldn't do it or that the behavior analytic organizations are recommending against it because people perceive us as rejecting everything that's not ABA. But if you can say the American Academy of Pediatrics or the American Speech and Hearing Association has this position statement to parents saying, don't do this intervention, it often eliminates the conversation about whether we should continue to pursue this. And so that's kind of one of the ways that I feel like we have to broaden our lens a little bit and look at 
what other disciplines have to offer, not just in terms of what their expertise brings to the interdisciplinary team, but what their publications and their reviews of procedures can do for the interdisciplinary team as we contemplate different paths or choices of interventions. And for example, the American Academy of Pediatric also has a very nice collection of them. And it includes things like um, sensory-based interventions, uh, auditory integration training, FC. So they're also allies, I think, in this pursuit of resources for parents who are making decisions about treatment. I personally love the red light, yellow light, green light method. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Be, well, and I think because because uh, me personally, I can add to it uh, and I can I can make it my own. Uh, and a, as I'm learning more, as I'm collaborating more, and then I can use that as, to develop and, and follow methods that I've tried when I come into a, a red light situation. All right, so what did I do in that situation and how effective was it? Um, did we get to a meaningful uh, spot and did uh, we get past this and then get back to the kid making progress? Um, and if not, then I can reflect on that and I can make changes. And then I can do that with everything else, like in the yellow or, or the green. So I can keep track of things that I'm finding more or less effective when I come into a situation where someone might be recommending facilitated communication. Right. And I do think it helps because if I know I'm in a red light conversation, it's a different kind of situation. This is actually a time when I'm not going to be able to participate in this because I know it brings harm or is ineffective. If I'm in a yellow light, maybe my skill set is particularly unique in this context because maybe I can help this team figure out whether this intervention makes a difference for this kid, which by the way is another kind of meta strategy I guess I use in collaborative context. I try to avoid what I call black hole discussions. And that's everything that isn't about this kid. Because the only way I know to actually get consensus and to move forward in these situations is to have something that's individually relevant that's about what we're going to do about this kid. It really doesn't make a lot of sense for us to have a conversation about what you think about vests and what I think about vests. Because if you're an OT that's been trained in sensory-based procedures and I'm a behavior analyst, we're not gonna change our views. And so I try not to have those conversations because people get irritated <laughs> with me if I do, right? I try to have conversations about, you know, you really think this vest could make a difference for this kid? All right, how would you put it on him? What would we take data on? Could we figure it out in two weeks? Because maybe it would be worth it. Well, and I personally love that approach. Anytime that you can, um, if it's not going to be harmful, if it's not one of those red lights and potentially not one of the yellow lights either, um, can we take data on it? Can we look at it in a systematic way and then let the data do the talking? Uh, and then right. if, if, if it might, we might find out for that kid in this specific instance, for some reason, it did help. Uh, but for this kid in this situation, it didn't. And I think people are much more receptive when it's, okay, well, let's look at it. Let's, let's try it and let's see it and let's see it through and then reevaluate uh, a couple weeks later or potentially a couple days later. Uh, I think people are more receptive when you take that approach. I, guess, I agree. I, I guess, I wonder though, uh, with, the yellow, with the yellow lights in particular, Let's say we did that approach and okay, and I'll speak to one of my experiences, uh, which is not a ABA versus other thing, it was ABA versus 
another ABA uh, kind of approach. Yeah, when I was in my master's program, I was at a place that refused to use error correction, right? They refused to say no to kids. And so I, I did a study uh, comparing error correction to errorless learning, and they were that participants. And the data clearly showed for this one girl um, that error correction was far superior in terms of uh, skill acquisition. They, she wasn't learning anything with the errorless learning, which was like what the company was doing. And with the error correction, she was learning skills. And at the end of the day, the person um, still said, uh, no, we're sticking with airless learning. That's our philosophy. The data was there. I mean, it was clear as, as day. Uh, what do you do in those situations? Well, that's ideological. Yeah. Right. And so I, I've run into that too. So, um, you know, even when I've done everything right from our skill set, um, like I can think of an example that I did a number of years ago, which was about vests. And um, the OT that I was working with uh, wanted this kid to wear vests. And the OT controlled everything, right? So the OT said how many pounds were in the weighted vest and how many minutes the kid um, was to wear it and did the treatment integrity checks on all the workers to make sure we were applying the vest correctly and um, controlled what data we were taking. Like I think it was that his stereotypy should decrease and his attention should increase. And we developed a way to systematically assess that. And we took beautiful data for several weeks and it showed the vest actually made him worse in this particular case. So um, performance and attention and STEM were all worse under conditions where he wore the vest. And we presented those data and what he said is, well, maybe I should have worn a pressure vest and not a weighted vest. Maybe it should have been three pounds instead of two pounds. Maybe he should have been 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off all day long. Maybe I should have taken delayed impact data and taken those data two hours after the vest was removed because sometimes it's a delayed effect. And I felt like, wow, like I'd probably have to do 15 studies on this vest before this particular practitioner would be ready to let go of it because he believed in vests and he believed that vests needed to be part of the mix despite what the data said. Um, and so I fail too, Justin, in terms of you know shifting people's opinions with data, but I try to do so. I guess what would you do or what advice would you give for students if that was the case, if they were in your shoes or my shoes there and they did the right thing with data and you just get into this ideology battle, uh, they're just not gonna buy the data, they're gonna make excuses or want different variations. How would, you, how would you train someone to navigate what to do? Right, well, I'm really happy because the last time AOTA talked about it, about every five years, AOTA puts out a, um, summary of what they recommend for autism interventions. And MJ, the last could, you time, just, could you just say what AOTA stands for for some of our members? The, uh, the uh, American Occupational Therapy Association. Yeah, I think, yeah. uh, and the last time they did that, they recommended against vests. And literally, like I was elated because <laughs> I've done so many vest trials, I can't even tell you. Um, and they themselves are sort of recommending against it. So I think I've kind of shifted in terms of vests are a bit orange to me now. Let's just say they're on their way to red. 
for me. Um, but um, but I, I think what I would do is I, I, I would not do 15 studies. I might do one variation. Okay, you want to give it one more shot? Tell me. You want to try the pressure vest or you want to try the 20 minutes on and off? But I wouldn't keep doing that. Um, and sometimes you have to agree to disagree. I mean, whether or not I can control, whether vests continue to be used in that instructional context is variable, right? And often the answer has been no in my career um, because I, I may not um, have the authority to do that and it may not actually be a group decision. But I would try to, as much as possible, turn that into the, a this kid discussion and a database discussion. Um, but at the end of the day, sometimes that works and, and I've had amazing experiences with people being moved by data and consensus being achieved. And I've had situations where it hasn't happened. I wouldn't keep fighting the fight, I think. Mm -hmm. there, Unless a, it was something like FC. Well, and there's a, there's a question that just came in. Um, there, we have two, but I think one one that just came in fits into this discussion a little bit better and then we can circle back around to the other question. Um, but the question is, there's a perception in schools that ABA is only meant for behavior reduction, while skill acquisition is meant for teachers, OTs, speech language pathologists. Uh, what do you suggest for people who work in schools where their roles are narrowed either by uh, other professionals in security or defensiveness or their territory or administrative de definitions of everyone's roles? I think I, I am stunned by that, but I see that every day. And the reason I'm stunned by it is like 90% of my training, 90% of my career's efforts have gone into skill acquisition. And I feel like, I know I have a really good skill set for behavior reduction, but it's a much smaller piece of the pie in terms of what I know how to do and also what I've spent my time doing. And I think it's a horrible consequence of um, like some of the positives that have happened in our field where we've been recognized, we have a credential that's sought, um, and yet we've been kind of defined in an overly narrow way. Um, and I think we're kind of thought of as, well, we're the behavior problem people. So um, I think that's, a, that's an issue that maybe you can attack on a few different levels. I think um, on a local level, it's good to negotiate role uh, in the interview process and beyond in terms of what you wanna do because you could easily find yourself in a job where they're making you do that all day every day when you really are interested in teaching kids skills. So I think it's important from a selection perspective, like what are these opportunities available to me um, and what kinds of questions can I ask about how I'll be spending my time? Because it's much more fun to be brought in for a broad assessment of what we could do differently with this kid. And I have never seen a context where working on challenging behaviors doesn't also include changing what you're doing instructionally. So it's an artificial dichotomy in terms of the skill set because they're related. And a good behavior analyst will always be working on all of it. So so A, I think it's a selection issue. B, I think it's an education issue in terms of the people that we do meet in our professional contexts. We need to do as much as we possibly can to um, 
to teach them about the nature of our skill set and about the definition of the jobs that's most appropriate for us. Um, and then thirdly, I guess it's also about understanding how those roles are being defined by regulatory agencies or funders and, um, and making sure that we have advocates who are working in those contexts that can ensure our skill set is being accurately reflected and supported. I, I agree on all of those points and I think it, it just illustrates how collaboration can go beyond just the specific case that you might be working on or that specific client that you have. That's when collaboration goes school-wide since the question was related to schools um, and collaborating with some of the upper administration and, and helping clarify the role of a behavior analyst or what you could bring to the table because I think um, if you are coming in with that reputation, then it's the same thing as us walking in, not knowing what other people's skill sets are bring, coming in with. And so right. um, you're, you're now becoming victim of the same thing that lots of behavior analysts do to other members on the collaborative team or other members on the interdisciplinary team. Exactly. They're responding to, that's a great point, Joe. They're responding to the limited data they have, the limited knowledge they have about our scope of training, our scope of expertise, what we can bring to the interdisciplinary team, sort of just further underscoring the need for reciprocity between all members of the team in terms of exploring and understanding each field's contribution. And the thing I took about that also with just the roles, I think that goes, I think it was a beautiful point for schools. I think for those who work in agencies, whether they provide home-based uh, model or clinic-based model or hybrid model, I think for the agency, it's so important also to negotiate or not negotiate, state your role ahead of time of what you consider your red light, yellow light, or green light. So parents coming in the door know that you know if they want to go and do facilitated communication, this is not the appropriate place for them to receive services. If they want to do uh, social thinking, this might be the uh, appropriate place or this might not be the appropriate place. I think the more we can be proactive, I think that leads to collaboration because parents, if you can educate them ahead of time and say, this is what we will accept and won't accept, this is what like our philosophy is, it's less likely that you come off jerky on the back end when they're requesting it because they, they're educated on that front end. I that's think that's a, a, that's a wonderful point, yeah. Uh, so, wow, we, I, it's amazing how fast time goes when we're doing this. <laughs> um, there's, a, I, I wanna, there's another question, and I think it's related to a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, but um, it, it's actually more of a statement. In my opinion, uh, BCBAs have the reputation of being inflexible in their thinking. It's very polarizing and I believe it continues today. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think that, um, like I said, I feel like I inherit the behavior of a lot of fellow BCBAs and people have impressions of me before they've even worked with me that are a result of negative experiences they found where they haven't been able to dialogue. Um, or they've been shut down in their conversations about various things. And so I think it sort of gets to that point that, um, that we made earlier, which is BCBAs aren't necessarily trained in, um, you know, 
in those interpersonal skills, in the conflict resolution, in negotiating, in compromise, all within the context of what's appropriate within our scientific foundation. I'm not talking about starting to do procedures that are unacceptable to us, but I do think there's a wide range of yellow light uh, interventions that require a nuanced conversation at the least. Yeah, I, I can I completely agree. And I there's a question came in while you were saying that that I think fits within this. So I'm gonna follow it up with how do you fix the so-called damage done where departments shy away from behavior analysts due to the established rapport um, they have where the behavior analyst is now being viewed as the know-it-all? Uh, how do you begin to mend that within a school setting? That's a great point. Um, I mean, one thing I think you could say is sometimes you can be explicit about it. Like, you know, I know we're coming about, the, uh, uh, about this from different perspectives. I know that uh, you're suggesting something I'm not familiar with or doesn't come from within my science, but I think it's important for all of us to talk about it, to examine it together, and to focus on it from a, a kid-specific perspective. So I'm gonna try to learn as much as I can about this intervention, about why you think this intervention is appropriate, um, and then come back with some more things for us to think about through it, but I think it needs to be a group process. I mean, I would just try to be as explicit as possible. I, 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 I would like to add to that and see what your thoughts are, MJ, because I've been in some of these situations where the damage has been done, uh, and we've come into school districts who are anti ABA or perceived anti-ABA or even clinics. And I, I know my approach that I've done with them is one, I wanna show them that there's a different way of doing it. Uh, so they might see some rigid implementation or they might see the, the styling being over, um, over critical. So I wanna show them that there's a different way and that it can fit in their model. I think the second thing that, I know Joe does this too from watching, uh, working with him and watching him in schools is a lot of it's rapport building, just like we would do with a child, and really just showing them that you're different than the previous experience and taking your time and build rapport with the teachers. Um, and, and for me, when, that, when I see the damage done, and depending on the contract that I'm with the school, I think of it as a shaping procedure. And so I, if I know I'm gonna be there in a month or a week or, or for a long time, I don't have to get in there and shape everything right away. I can just pick one thing. I can pick a thing that they're, the teacher's really invested into it um, and, and really focus on what the teacher or the paraprofessional or the admin wants and just focus on that and just slowly build that momentum and that rapport with them so I can get to the bigger goals or my bigger goals later on. So I, I think uh, it's somewhat the same way, but it's just other things I think about when um, working in the damage done area. Yeah, That's a good I, point. I, I think it's a, a great point. And I think you can also look at it from just since you brought up me working in schools, uh, anytime that I get called into a school or if I go in to consult in a classroom or in, in a school, uh, I, I proactively ask, so what's your past experience with behavior analysis or behavior analysts? So I get to know exactly what I'm coming in to the door with. Uh, and so I get to know their perspective. And so I can use that to inform my first time in there. And like you said, Justin, there'll be times where I'll go into a classroom and I won't do anything. I won't, I won't make any suggestions. I, I'm just there to observe and, and to build a relationship um, with the teacher or the teacher's assistants or any of the aides that are in there. Uh, because 
anytime that I feel like a behavior analyst gets called into a school setting, there's already some, the teacher typically doesn't want you there, or it was an administrator right. that might have called you in. And, and having that information is beneficial too to how you might approach building a collaborative relationship in that setting. That's a great point. And kind of finding ways to pair, like what are the things that you could do that make you valuable and that increase their tolerance of slash liking of your input? Uh, one, one more thing to it, and just as you guys are talking, it makes me remember, is a lot of times I see behavior analysts who go there and they're just taking notes and making suggestions and they're not actually doing any hands-on part of it. I remember a lot of times building rapport in these classrooms, which didn't want me there in the first place. It's like, you, the suggestion would be like, well, do group instruction instead of, you know, 10 one-to-one sessions. And they'd be like, that's impossible. And it's like letting them, once they have that trust and rapport, you get to go do it and they get to see you do it. And they get to see you mess up in front of it and make mistakes and see what's good. And I think that builds rapport that if you're willing to get your hands dirty in it and just not sit back, uh, then they seem to, that seems to create some momentum and buy-in as well. Well, that kind of triggered one of my like um, common thoughts about continuing education. And it, this is just like the world according to Mary Jane. But I wish we were, um, we were required to continue to demonstrate clinical proficiency. Because I think how can we be teachers and trainers if we're not in a, in a position where we could sit down and model for individuals what this should look like? right? It's one thing to talk about procedures. It's another thing to demonstrate those procedures. And if you lose the ability to actually demonstrate those clinical skills, I think you lose a lot of your power as a teacher and trainer. I think that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful point. Um, and we just had another question come in. Man, the, the questions are, are rolling off. Um, as a parent professional, in my opinion, uh, regardless of the conversation um, with other professionals, the parent will try to incorporate the input from all disciplines. Uh, it's an enormous stressor for parents to have to contend with providers who, uh, who are not in agreement. Uh, the parent is an essential part of the collaboration and should be part of the conversation. A hundred percent, 150 percent. The parent is a member of the team and, and is the driving force in all the decision making. And I think, um, I, I think, I couldn't agree more about the importance of incorporating that. And I also think we have to be mindful of you're creating stress for the parent when you voice your concerns about the other procedures or the other professionals. Like that's not an appropriate way to resolve those kinds of issues either. Yeah, well, I think, you know, go ahead, Justin. No, you first. Uh, you went, I went first last time, Jeff. Uh, I was going to say, I feel like this could be a whole nother, another topic about bringing in parents and collaboration and collaborating with parents effectively. I think a lot of our conversation has been directed to other professionals. Uh, and so I think it's, it's a very great point. And I think one of the errors that I see behavior analysts make um, is a, maybe blaming the parents uh, or um, not coming, not understanding the parents' perspective that they want to make sure that they're doing everything possible that's going to benefit their child. Uh, and so if you haven't been in that situation, it's difficult to empathize with that and, and understand like, well, you might think that it's not working and you might throw all the data you want at me, but this is my child. 
uh, and I care about them greatly. And I'm going to try everything I can to make sure that they're going to be successful and have a high And I'm not going to leave that stone unturned because what if in 10 years that turns out to be the number one thing I should have done? That's a very different possibility from the parental point of view than it is from our point of view. Um, so, but that is a whole other conversation um, in terms of, of working compassionately with families and really partnering with them in effective ways. I'd love to talk to you guys about that some other time um, as well, but um, that's a really, um, really different context and their decision tree by definition is gonna be different. I, I think one way to, unless you, unless you have an, uh, a child diagnosed with autism, you're not gonna be able to live it or personalize it. But I would suggest uh, for those of you who supervise uh, BCBAs, BCABAs, RBTs, or those of you who are becoming, you know, I think one thing is to find mentors or ways that you can kind of get that experience. So I remember, I remember my first early experiences were uh, going to uh, UCLA diagnostic uh, clinic. So mm -hmm. I can see what parents are going through in terms of the diagnostic process, not to learn how to do the ADOS or anything like that, but just to see what parents are going through, the emotions that they go through, how a diagnostician uh, uh, works with them in and, and one of the hardest moments of their life, and then, the, and then following up a year later and seeing what happens with those families. And I think it gives you some warmth and empathy and compassion um, with that. So I think the more that you can put yourself in situations where you can see it from their side or somewhat see it from their side, the better off uh, be, that you'll be. I think that gets back to coursework and, um, and training experiences. I think that people should be exposed to information about the impact that autism has on all members of the family. And, um, and, and I think that with more information comes more understanding. And I think it is difficult for people to understand um, and the impact is broader than people realize. And, and just to kind of wrap up, I think one thing I love that you said was that, I didn't love that you said it, but <laughs> I, I love that it's true. I don't love that, you know, you have to say it, is that, you know, these skills that we're talking about are not well operationally defined. And I, I really hope yourself or uh, Danielle or Bridget Taylor or Linda LeBlanc or Shala Ali, uh, people who've been talking about it for years or recently been talking about it and studying it, uh, we'll start to operationally define it and, and put in the parameters. I think it's not going to be a strict definition, but I think it's going to be parameters and guidelines. Because I think once we start operationally define it and once we um, start studying it more, uh, that what's going to happen is it'll find its way into the white book. It will find its way into uh, the BACB task list. And once that's there, then I think more coursework is going to be mandated uh, so that you take it. Uh, and so I think it's, I'm encouraged to see the increase in talking about it in the last few years. And, and the increase in publications. Yeah. I think it's starting to happen already. And a lot of really good people are turning their research attention to it too. I think we're in the midst of exactly that, Justin. And, and I, 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 my hope is that continues because I think, I think that if it makes it to its way to the task list, that will change, uh, not your program because you're already doing it, but some of those programs who don't incorporate that as part of their teaching, it will, it will just change the nature of what they're being taught. I think that's a great point. So everyone who's here, when, when those surveys come out from the BACB about items to include on the task list, make sure that you're putting things like this in because they, they 
probably listen to that and hopefully it can find its way on a task list. Well, Mary Jane, we are so appreciative. Now remember, no one can leave yet because you don't have that closing word. Um, <laughs> we're so appreciative of you uh, being here and speaking with us today. It's, uh, it's it always fun. whenever we get to talk to you. Mm -hmm. uh, outside. I never say no to you guys, so I'll come back. Yeah, <laughs> and it great. sounds like people are wanting uh, you back. So remember, you have to email me at J-B-L-A-U-T-P-A-R. Joe, please type that in. Uh, give me your BCBA number. If you don't give me your BCBA number, it's really a hassle trying to find your BCBA number. It takes a lot longer. You have to put in the opening word and the closing word. I'll tell you the closing word in a minute. But, you know, we plan on doing this again in two weeks. We do it every other Wednesday at 1 to 2. It's kind of rants with Joe and Justin Day. Uh, we will get back to you with the next presenter. I think we like this uh, having guests on. It makes it easier for us and more entertaining for you. But if there's people that you want, you can not guarantee that we'll get them or they'll say yes to us. But we like to listen to you guys as well. And some of you guys are repeated customers at this point, our, our attendees. So just email us a list and we'll see what we can do. No guarantees. So you guys remember the opening word. The closing word is cupcakes. Cupcakes, like what you eat. So with that, uh, we say farewell from Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you, Mary Jane. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Take care.